from across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. I want to say that Jim Adams really sends his apologies um, across the course of the day. Um, he, he sounded more and more like a frog, and then uh, all of a sudden, about an hour ago, he started really going downhill, and so he kept saying, oh, oh, come. I'm like, uh, no, no, <laughs> really, it's okay. So he is back resting at the hotel. Um, so he sent his, his sincere apologies. He really wanted to be here tonight. Um, because we actually have a lot of exciting things to be talking about. Um, we're really embarking on sort of a new phase of exploration. And when I say we, I, I don't just mean NASA, I mean actually the world. Because the program I'm going to be talking about, the path that I'm going to be describing tonight, is not just a path that's being worked on by NASA, it's actually being worked on by all of the space agencies of the world. Um, there's a group uh, that's worked on something called the Global Exploration Roadmap, on how can we, as all of the nations of the world, work together to take on a huge challenge, which is moving humans beyond low Earth orbit. Um, no one country, no one nation can certainly afford to do this on our own. So what is the best path forward? And all the nations of the world are actually working very closely together on this. So I'm going to be talking um, to you today about NASA's um, part in that, what we're working on, what our goals and objectives are. <coughs> Uh, at least in the near term. Um, like all space agencies of the world, um, we're trying to do something very bold um, over quite a long time period. And that's a challenging thing to do um, in a world that usually doesn't work on 5, 10, 15, 20 year time horizons. Um, most governments work on much shorter time horizons. So to lay forward a framework that builds um, piecemeal to accomplish something very big is a huge challenge. And that's, again, why it's so important that this be not a U.S. effort, but a truly international effort. Um, I'm going to start by taking a step back um, and talking about how this fits uh, overall, uh, what's the science rationale. Um, then Jim was going to talk about the technologies and some of the first steps that we're working on, um, and I'm going to muddle my way through his slides. Um, the science slides were obviously <coughs> my slides. So, um, at, at NASA, the science we do, um, as you probably well know, uh, literally spans um, the universe from the science that we do um, studying our own sun, not just from a point of view of trying to understand how a star operates, how a star evolves, uh, but from the fact that, as most of you probably know, the sun produces huge streams of particles in solar flares and coronal mass ejections that can disrupt communications uh, around the Earth, and obviously none of us um, want anyone's cell phone coverage to be interrupted for even a moment because that's a, that would be a crisis. So um, trying to understand the behavior of the sun, but especially then as we look forward to eventually sending humans beyond low Earth orbit, beyond the protection of the Van Allen radiation belts where they're going to be subjected to much more uh, bombardment by particles. So trying to understand the behavior of the sun using our network of uh, international assets that are right now studying the sun and the ones we hope to put into place uh, over the next several years to really get at more how does this star operate uh, and how can we better understand and predict its behavior and, and how it affects us. <coughs> um, the work that we do in astrophysics, I think, is some of, of the stuff that sometimes makes your brain hurt, like when someone try, you try to understand gravitational waves and the implications of that for the Big Bang. But 
a lot of the images that have been returned by, by assets like Hubble, uh, I think look more like art uh, than science. Um, the stellar nurseries that we've imaged, uh, the, the fields, the deep fields of galaxies that were obviously forming at much earlier time periods than we'd anticipated in the history uh, of the universe. Uh, the multitude of things that we've been able to learn about the very early stages of, of the formation of the universe, the formation of galaxies, has been uh, quite dramatic. The International Space Station um, is another example of where we do a huge, broad range uh, of science every day, from trying to understand the effects of deep space on the human body, which I'm going to come back to in detail uh, later in the talk, to some of the fundamental physics that we plan on doing. In a couple years, we're going to be launching a cold atom lab that will take atoms down to near absolute uh, zero to, to better understand uh, complex atomic behavior. Um, to the work that we're doing in all kinds of genetics, for example, the fact that bact some bacteria, when you send them into space, like salmonella, become more virulent. Other, times of, other types of bacteria become less virulent in space. So we're doing an awful lot of genetics research on things that range from plants to fruit flies. Uh, we're sending our first bunch of rodents up uh, later in the summer to do an extensive amount of basically uh, genetics omics type research to understand what are the effects uh, of these different systems that zero gravity is having. And we know, again, in all kinds of different, either from plants to fruit flies to, to humans, uh, when you take gravity out of the equation, genes start turning on and off and doing weird things. Uh, and so trying to use that information to then better understand root behavior uh, is something that we're able to do every day up on the International Space Station. Um, our studies of the solar system, we literally right now have spacecraft going from one end of the solar system to the other. We have the messenger spacecraft around Mercury that's been returning all kinds of in interesting information about the evolution of that planet's surface. Um, to the New Horizons spacecraft that we have on its way to Pluto, um, to the Juno spacecraft on its way to Jupiter. So very uh, extensive programs and trying to understand the bodies of our own solar system, how have they evolved and how can we use that information to better understand our own planet. <clears throat> to the 17 satellites that we have in orbit around the Earth right now that are measuring basically every aspect of our water cycle, uh, we have a satellite launching this summer to study uh, atmospheric carbon. Uh, we have satellites that look at the gravity map of the Earth that we can use to see when, when aquifers are being drained of, of water. Uh, we have a global precipitation measurement mission that's part of a multi-nation core of, of uh, measurements that are allowing us to measure precipitation globally around the planet every three hours. All aspects of climate and weather are being addressed by our fleet uh, as well as the international fleet of Earth-observing satellites. Um, so if you look at this, it's, it's quite a breadth of science. And so the question becomes, what's the connection? And that's my job as sort of chief scientist of NASA, is to look across all of the different science we do and say, you know, what are the connections? And, and what does this have to do with going to Mars? Um, and most of our guiding documents, and at NASA we use a series of guiding documents called decadal surveys, where our National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. through the National Research Council every decade organizes uh, astronomers, uh, planetary scientists, earth scientists, and microgravity scientists, and they put forward a 10-year plan that really comes bottom-up from the scientific community. And we use those decadal surveys 
as the guiding documents to lay out the kind of science that we do. And in a lot of those documents, as well as our kind of fundamental strategic plans of NASA, you find some variation of these three really simple questions. Are we alone? How did we get here? And how does our universe work? Um, and so whether you apply these questions to the universe and say, what are the origins of the universe? What is the evolution of the universe? If you apply it to planetary science and say, how did we get this diversity of planets that we have in our solar system? And how can we use that information to better understand the state and fate of the Earth? It's really these fundamental questions getting at what are the origins of the planets, the universe, uh, and, and the stars, uh, and how can we understand how they change over time. And when it comes to the universe, being able to have assets that can look deeper and deeper into space, and thus deeper and deeper into time, we can get at, again, some of these fundamental processes that shape the universe. Obviously, the search for dark matter is ongoing. We have an instrument up on the International Space Station that's looking for my favorite acronym in science, WIMPs, Weekly Interacting Massive Particles, um, to the work that we are going to be able to do with the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch in 2018, a really key mission for NASA. It will, again, look deeper into space, deeper into time. It will be able to better understand uh, uh, study stellar evolution. Uh, it will be addressing black holes at the centers of galaxies. But for me, as a planetary scientist, even more intriguingly, uh, Hubble will be able to, or James, the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to look at uh, the atmospheres of planets around other stars. Extremely interesting asset uh, that will launch in 2018. Uh, so these questions about the universe and the data that we're increasingly capable of being able to collect uh, is tremendously exciting. And again, this isn't a US thing. Um, all of these missions are international efforts. When you look at, at our own solar system, um, you know, I talk a lot uh, with kids groups. I talked to some kids at Imperial College uh, this afternoon. Um, and, and I like to tell them, you know, when I was growing up, we had nine planets. You guys only have eight. Um, <laughs> and, and obviously, we used to have poor Pluto here at the end, but it's gone now. But, you know, back when I was in school, in all seriousness, you know, we had ideas, okay, this is what a solar system looks like. You have rocky planets close to a star. You have gas giants further out from a star. And we had a model that said, well, you know, it's temperature and pressure gradient away from a parent star, and, and that's why we have what we have. Well, of course, when you only have one thing to study, you can develop a great model to explain it. But once you start getting more data, you have to start revising your theory. And over the last 20 years, um, amazingly, that's what we've been able to do, because increasingly we've developed the technology to be able to detect planets around other stars. So we went from having eight or nine planets to study to in the 90s, all of a sudden, finding planets on almost a daily basis. And of course, early on, we had the technology to detect uh, Jupiter-sized planets. And we started finding them really close to their parent star, or far from their parent star, or all different distances. And we realized that that sort of more simplistic model that we had um, had to be adjusted. And we now have something called the Nice model, developed in Nice, France. On the other hand, you know, fasten your seatbelt, because what's happened over the last several years is a new telescope um, that was in operation. It lost one of its reaction wheels, so it's now uh, in a transition stage. The Kepler Space Telescope, which is responsible for all of these yellow dots, over 3,500 candidate planets that we've discovered 
uh, in the last several years. And this chart is just showing you their size uh, and their distance um, from their parent star. But what's exciting is, you know, early on I was saying most of the planets we were finding were these Jupiter-sized planets, which again we found sort of close in or far out. Kepler gave us the technology to start detecting planets in the size range of the Earth. And sure enough, it's found that planets between the size of Earth and Neptune are actually quite common. So this is incredibly exciting. We now have this population of candidate planets that we can turn the James Webb Space Telescope to to start trying to determine what the atmospheres of these extrasolar planets could be. Incredibly exciting time because my guess is just like when we had the study of one solar system, we now have been studying atmospheres of planets in one solar system. When we have the ability to start studying atmospheres of hundreds of planets, my guess is a lot of what we think about how planets evolve, how their atmospheres evolve, is going to be turned on its end. So to me, when you see new data like this that, again, brand new, coming in over the last few years, it's really going to turn science on its end. And I think it's an incredibly exciting time uh, in this study of extrasolar planets, really the whole birth of a science and its implications for our own solar system, our own planetary evolution, I think are tremendously exciting. What links extrasolar planets back, believe it or not, to why we want to go to Mars is this fundamental question that I had on the slide in the beginning. Are we alone, and how did we get here? Has life evolved on any other body? Okay, based on what we know about life on Earth, which you can, okay, you can say right from the beginning, are you sure we should use that one model as the be-all and end-all model? No, but it's the one we have, so let's start there. Life, to get life on Earth, we think you need three basic things. You need a source of organics. That's not very hard because comets and asteroids have delivered those materials all over our own solar system. So we think those things are pretty common. Uh, you need a source of energy. Maybe not that hard either because uh, lots of planets have volcanoes. Some planets have lightning. So sources of energy are maybe not so hard either. What we think is the hard part is having liquid water. So when we look in our own solar system and say, where did we have liquid water persistent? Um, Mars certainly instantly comes up a as a huge candidate, and I'll talk more about Mars in a minute. But Mars isn't actually the only part of that story. Europa, um, Jupiter's moon Europa, uh, it has a water ocean under this icy crust, um, which we think is in some places maybe thick, and in other places very thin. And just in uh, last December, with the Hubble Space Telescope, we actually... Um, uh, a scientist discovered that there were plumes of water uh, coming out of the south polar region of Europa. Now, what would that be? Well, this is Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, and you see these plumes coming out of Enceladus. Um, those are actually geysers erupting um, from Enceladus, and we've actually flown the Cassini spacecraft through those water plumes. That's how partially we know they're water. Um, and not only have, did Cassini measure water in those, uh, in those geysers, it also measured that there were some kind of organic um, particles in them. Um, the mass spectrometer on Cassini isn't, uh, doesn't go off to, out to heavy enough mass number for us to be able to really identify what those organics are, um, but we know they're there and we know it's interesting. So we know, okay, here are two other destinations in our own solar system besides Mars, uh, Enceladus and Europa, 
uh, that both have these water geysers, that both probably have organics, and therefore have the potential for life. Um, uh, Europa is particularly interesting because most of you have heard of black smokers, those um, uh, volcanic pipes on the ocean floor that are extremely rich bi biological environments. Well, some of you might be familiar with Jupiter's moon Io. Um, it's the really volcanic moon, uh, volcanoes all over it. And the reason it's volcanic is because that huge mass of Jupiter is constantly pulling on Io. Huge amount of friction melts the interior, produces lots of volcanoes on, on Io. Well, Enceladus is, or Europa is not that much further away from Jupiter. So think about underneath this icy ocean, on icy crust, the ocean, there's got to be, it is highly likely, scientifically based on what we see on Io, Europa's distance, that you probably have volcanic activity at the base uh, of that, of that uh, Europan subsurface ocean. Again, these ingredients that we think are so intriguing. So we know that we have these huge questions about life. We know we would like to understand our own solar system better as a framework for going out beyond our own solar system uh, as we begin to study planets around other stars. And we certainly have these targets. So we've focused on Mars uh, because it's a place where humans could go. It's a place where humans could live. And we know that surface water existed for long periods of time. Um, and then we have our more exotic targets that we'd eventually like to visit. But if we're trying to move off of the Earth, you have to do it in a stepwise fashion. Because as I'll get into in a little bit, uh, the challenges are clearly great. And near our own system, obviously, the moon provides um, an easy and very interesting place uh, to study. Uh, the moon is often referred to as a witness plate um, for the Earth. All of those craters on the moon preserve the heavy bombardment that the Earth was subjected to very early in its history. So being able to better understand that cratering rate, uh, those processes that took place on the, early, on the moon actually give us insights uh, onto the Earth. So studying the moon is actually incredibly important for understanding the history of the Earth. Other potential targets uh, for exploration are the building blocks in our solar system. Um, and comets and asteroids certainly fall into that category, with comets being obviously a really interesting source of organics and volatiles for planets, uh, and asteroids as well <coughs> being a source of both volatiles and the building block materials of which all the planets are made. Um, so an asteroid um, presents itself uh, as an interesting potential target. Um, not to mention that asteroids in the Earth obviously have a uh, long-term um, interacting history uh, that we would like to better understand uh, in terms of what are the population of near-Earth crossing asteroids that could potentially uh, impact the Earth. But Mars really remains our prime focus. Why? Um, why don't we just go to the moon? Why do we want to go to Mars? Um, and to me, again, it gets back to this question of life. Um, and as a geologist, I'm a field geologist. I like to go out and bang rocks uh, with a hammer. Um, and the ability to send a human down on the surface um, to do science, I think, is the way we're ever going to significantly be able to prove that, that um, life evolved on Mars and, and what the nature of it is. You're actually going to need scientists 
down on the surface of, of Mars doing work. And again, it's because of this rich history that Mars has had with long periods uh, of water viable on the surface. We've landed now successfully on Mars over seven times, uh, with the most recent being the Curiosity lander uh, in Gale Crater. And again, uh, Curiosity has been able to demonstrate um, that the surface of Mars did have these sustaining environments for life that were not too acidic, uh, not too basic, where again we feel that water was um, stable on the surface for long periods of time, enough to form the kind of minerals that you would need or that demonstrate that water was stable. From all of these landing sites, all of these places we've been able to go on Mars, uh, we've been able to put together this scientific story. But uh, one of these, I think it's this one, is actually the Viking landing site that was a stable. The rest of these all came from our rovers. And you think, well, why send humans? Why don't we just have rovers? Most of these rovers, well, Pathfinder, the first rover, basically only went meters. Um, Spirit and Opportunity went much further, partially because they lasted a lot longer than we thought they would, with Opportunity still operating now for over 10 years. Um, but even with Curiosity, you're limited by how far we can go and how fast we can go, um, just by technology. We're talking sort of kilometer, couple kilometers in a week. Just think if you had a human on a surface. You could assess three or four outcrops in an hour, not in days, not in weeks. So the slowness of the science, the ability to react and interact which to a geologist is something that we do in the field on a normal basis, is something that I feel is necessary to really truly understand Mars. So as an international community, what have we been doing at Mars? So, because saying, oh, we want to go to Mars as humans, we're already at Mars, we've just been sending our robotic uh, workers there. And all of our missions have followed a theme of trying to understand what are the habitable environments. So where's the water? How can we use that water to demonstrate that you have long-term habitable environments? And then as our instruments get more sophisticated, our rovers get more sophisticated, actually seeking signs of life. Can we find evidence of organics on the surface? Um, and so again, a very international program from uh, instruments, like he mentioned, I'm on the Mar ESA's Mars Express mission, um, to our several orbiters. We have the MAVEN uh, mission, which is going to go into orbit around Mars um, in uh, late September, early October. That's going to be studying the atmosphere of Mars. Uh, to ESA's Trace Gas Orbiter, which will be launched in 2016, also studying the atmosphere of Mars. Uh, our International Mission InSight, which will be looking at the interior structure of Mars. The interior structure is important for, again, understanding this long-term history of water on the planet. Um, to uh, the ESO, uh, ESA ExoMars rover to NASA's Mars 2020 rover. So we are exploring Mars. We are already there. Um, we're doing it internationally. And we're also actually collecting data already to get us ready to send humans to Mars. Uh, the Curiosity rover was instrumented with uh, instruments to really characterize its ent entry, descent, and landing in terms of collecting data that would be useful to a future manned mission. It carried a radiation instrument uh, to characterize the deep space radiation between Earth and Mars and then to characterize the radiation environment that humans would be subjected to on the surface of Mars. And likewise, the Mars uh, uh, 2020 rover will carry both those sorts of instrumentation 
and potentially something that will begin to take us down the path to in situ resource utilization. And again, the ultimate goal on this to me is, um, and John Grunsfeld, who's actually the head of the science division at NASA, he likes to say, you know, we're not sending astronauts to Mars, we're sending scientists to Mars. Um, because it's really those scientists, those technologists that we want to get down on the surface because we're not going there for the fun of it, we're going there to work and to do science uh, and to explore. So how are we going to go about doing this? Um, and right now we've developed something uh, that we call the road to Mars, trying to formulate uh, a defensible path that's also flexible, that as you learn you can figure out what the next step is because the problem is as we go through there are huge technological challenges in this so we're going to have to be adaptive um, and, and sort of learn as we go. So the phase we're in right now is sort of a two-part phase where we are first of all we're earth reliant so we're doing extensive research again on the International Space Station to try to understand the long-term effects of space on the human body. Um, a lot of research to be done uh, microgravity environment affects basically every human system from the cardiovascular system It in increases intracranial pressure which has led to uh, uh, vision problems um, muscle wasting uh, bone density loss lots of effects on the human system in in microgravity which to me is also just fascinating from a scientific point of view if you say you know as humans we evolved in this 1g environment and you take us out of it and we actually don't work so well and okay, how can you then turn that information around and maybe use it for medical advances here on this planet? Um, so we have a huge amount of scientific work to be done um, in this Earth-reliant mode to get ready to send humans to Mars. Then we'll be ready to move on to something we call the proving ground. Can you go out into the near lunar environment and start demonstrating the technologies, the capabilities that you need uh, in a place that's one or two days away from the Earth. So can we do it at a safe distance from the Earth that things go wrong and you're not in an irretrievable situation where you're three and a half months on a seven month journey to Mars. So using this proving ground, using this near Earth space um, to start moving beyond low Earth orbit is the sensible thing to do. Um, and then obviously in the interim, while we're doing this with humans, there's the work that we're already doing with Mars, the science I talked about that we're collecting with missions like MAVEN, with Curiosity, that we'll be uh, collecting with all of our international Mars assets to do the science that we need to close what we call the strategic knowledge gaps, things like what is the characteristic of the dust on Mars. Um, for example, when the Apollo astronauts were coming back from the moon, they got back into the capsule and all the dust that was on their suits um, when they got into zero gravity, it started floating around the capsule and they were inhaling it. Um, it was getting into all the systems in the Apollo capsule. Dust is something that you really need to worry about, not just from a human health point of view, but from a is it going to get into your mechanical systems and break them point of view. So scientifically understanding, we know Mars is a very dusty place. What are the characteristics of that dust? How is it going to behave? Incredibly important. Characterizing the Martian atmosphere. Uh, Mars has a very thin atmosphere, but it's actually quite variable. Um, it takes about seven and a half minutes to get from the top of Mars atmosphere to the surface. Uh, there's a great video that if you haven't seen it that they put forward, uh, JPL put forward for the um, Curiosity landing called Seven and a Half Minutes of Terror, where they explain how difficult it is 
to get large amounts of mass down onto the surface of Mars. Okay, now we're talking about something 10, 20, 50 times more massive than Curiosity. Huge challenge. We have science to do to get ready for that point. So I would argue that all future Mars missions uh, that the U.S. <coughs> will be doing will now be joint human exploration science missions. We'll be doing great science that we need to do at Mars to answer some of our fundamental questions about Mars, but we will also be testing technologies, making scientific measurements to help us get ready uh, for sending humans to Mars. So more specifically, what are we actually doing on the International Space Station? We're, uh, uh, I talked a little bit about the human um, health and human performance issues, uh, and it, it doesn't just go to, again, human health, which has all these effects, but it's how do we develop and test uh, nutritional food systems uh, that will keep astronauts healthy for the seven months to Mars when we can't resupply with fresh fruit and vegetables like we're able to do uh, with the International Space Station right now. Uh, how do you feed people food that is not only appealing um, so that they don't get even more bummed out than they already are about being trapped in this little capsule with three of their maybe not so best <coughs> friends, um, but how do you keep them uh, eating in a way that's nutritional and helps offset potentially some of these, um, some of these other effects? And, and I, as an aside, I have to tell you it's been, of course, personally disappointing to find out that one of the ways they've been able to offset um, some of these issues like bone density loss and muscle wasting in astronauts and even some of the intracranial pressure. Um, don't eat too much salt, eat lots of fish, eat fruits and vegetables, and get lots of regular exercise. So it's the same prescription everywhere, right? You know, do the right things and you'll stay healthy. It's the same on the International Space Station. But that's not the only thing we're doing. We're also dealing with issues like uh, using the... Um, ISS is a technology testbed for some of these technologies that we're going to need. Uh, one of the huge ones is uh, closed-loop life support. Uh, life support systems, making sure that the CO2 levels don't get too high, that the oxygen is at the right levels, uh, is a huge challenge. Uh, water supplies, we're already very successfully in the last year or so now uh, recycling urine, that's one of the main sources of water now on the International Space Station. So some of these systems that we've developed at the, up there we can use, but can we translate those into systems that, for example, might be compact enough um, to be used on a seven-month mission to Mars? So huge issues with life support, uh, things like docking systems, uh, just logistics and maintenance, human health, how do you predict what medical emergencies might occur, how can we start training and developing procedures uh, for long-term human health in, in space. Uh, and certainly our commercial crew uh, and cargo programs are a huge point um, from NASA's point of view in taking us uh, to a position where NASA's not utilizing most of its resources um, in maintaining a presence in low Earth orbit and transporting humans back and forth in low Earth orbit. That's turned over to the commercial sector and NASA can f uh, focus its assets on, on the next steps to go to Mars. Um, I've mentioned time and time again this human health issue, which I think is, is fascinating, and radiation is clearly uh, one of the biggest challenges that we face. And uh, even worse, uh, radiation exacerbates that bone density loss problem. So it's not only uh, potential radiation effects on increasing people's cancer risk, uh, increasing potential cognitive issues, um, but it also then even affects your bones. So 
trying to find ways um, to potentially shield. Obviously, you can't use metal because it turns out the cosmic rays coming in would just energize whatever uh, you, you know, metals you would be trying to shield with. People are talking a lot about water. Can you use a water layer around a transport vehicle as maybe the best way to provide shielding? Um, do you only need to shield part of it? Do you, can you have an escape place where people could go if they knew there was a major uh, uh, solar event? Uh, so huge issues on how do we protect humans from radiation uh, on this long duration uh, trip. And again, we're doing a lot of work on that as well as work on, for example, teaching the astronauts to do diagnostics with a sonogram machine, um, thinking about, again, how do you send people out so that they are no longer in an Earth-reliant position? And that's why working in that proving ground of near the moon, being able to test out a lot of these technologies and procedures when you have a safety valve of coming back to Earth is so important. So. Really, the exploration of Mars has three separate parts to it. Uh, it has just the pure human exploration aspects, and this also follows how we organize ourselves. Um, it has the science aspects that I've been talking about, uh, as well as technology development. So it really takes three areas of NASA that over history have actually been separate areas and has us working together. Um, and that's really exciting to be able to move into a mode where you say, okay, these programs really aren't separate. Uh, we may be in separate areas, but we're all working towards a common goal. Uh, and there's a huge amount of, of really fun and exciting overlap. Now, our, our first step that we've outlined um, in this path to Mars is a mission that's called the Asteroid Redirect Mission. Uh, where we would go, uh, we're looking at two different scenarios right now for the asteroid redirect mission. One is to go and capture 